Hey, man, it's me, Kevin Smith. Are you listening to the right podcast? Because you're supposed to be listening to Three Guys in a Flick. Are you listening to that right now? Then you're in the right place. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Oh, man, I can't fucking believe this. Another basement, another elevator. How can the same shit happen to the same guy twice? Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Beware, spoilers. Coming to you from the control tower at Dulles International, my name is Don. And to my right, we have our comic book guy, John. Hey, how about a couple words there, John? You can have two. Fuck and you. Ooh. And to my left, we have the professor, Ken. Hey, everybody. Now, this is our Christmas episode, right? Yes, indeed it is. And why did we do Die Hard 2? That's a good question, comic book guy, and let me uh, just answer it by saying this. Uh, We decided to do Die Hard 2 because it is, in fact, a sequel to the greatest Christmas movie ever made, Die Hard. Now, funnily enough, Die Hard 3 has nothing to do with Christmas. Die Hard 4 and 5 have nothing to do with Christmas. So this, in essence, will wrap up John McClane's Christmas adventures. So we thought, yeah, why not? Let's go for Die Hard 2. And if anybody out there has not listened to our last year Christmas special, go go listen to it. Go enjoy our Die Hard celebration. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Do you guys remember seeing this in the theater? I do. I know I did, but I, I don't recall. Oh, I do. I remember. Did it hold up to the first Die Hard? I thought it was very much in the spirit of Die Hard. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it basically it almost is Die Hard 1. They just pumped up the action. They pumped up the explosions and definitely pumped up the one-liners. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So it was, it was all the, the, you know, the chocolate goodness from the first one. Did you just say all the chocolate goodness from the first one? Yeah. Like the holiday candy is just all, <laughs> it's all awesome. the goodness with maybe some uh, syrup poured on top. It's a very fun watch. Yeah. Released on July 4th, 1990, Die Hard 2, Die Harder, was based on the story on the book 58 Minutes by Walter Wagger. Characters are from the book Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. It was directed by Rennie Harlan, written by Stephen E. D'Souza and Doug Richardson, and it stars Bruce Willis, Bonnie Bedelia, William Atherton, Reginald Val Johnson, Franco Nero, William Sadler, John Amos, and a bunch of other actors. How'd this movie do, Don? Uh, this movie had a budget of $70 million and brought in $240 million. I thought it was interesting. If you look back to the original Die Hard, their budget was $35 million. So right off the bat, they doubled the budget for this movie. Yeah, well, they doubled the, they tripled the locations. So, mm-hmm. I mean, just shot for shot. On an exterior at an airport? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, But, you know, as to be expected, it brought in more money than Die Hard, which isn't uncommon at all, especially back then. It was not the top grocer for that year. (gasps) What? No, and it wasn't the second or the third. 
It was, in, it was the sixth. In the Ooh. year 1990, Professor, what was the top grossing movie of the year, please? Oh, my darling. Oh, Lord. What is it, comic book guy? Is that Ghost? Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. The comic book guy gets a correct answer. All right, so Ghost is the number one movie of the year. What's number two? Number two. Oh, I'm not going to sing that. <laughs> Oh, please. No. All right. Well, at least give me a, just make it a game, right? Hum, hum a few bars. All right. How about this? It's it's one of Roy Orbison's number one songs. Why don't you want to sing Pretty Woman? I don't think I can do it. Pretty woman. But you got to Walking get, down you the gotta, street. But you got to get. Pretty woman. You want to get the, uh, the, the Roy Orbison sound. <laughs> and I don't think I could do that. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. And uh, number three. A Christmas classic. Home Alone. Oh, yeah, Home Alone did dominate. I guess I thought it did even better than that. I'm surprised it came in third. Yeah. How did Ghost get first? Uh, Two words for you. Patrick Swayze. I thought inappropriately touching clay. Why is that inappropriately? I don't know. I I can't, like, see people doing clay anymore without thinking of... Sex? Something going on, yeah. Yeah. Is, Is that so horrible? Wait. So you can inappropriately touch clay? Apparently. Well, yeah, well no, the, here's, here's what I'm trying to get at, yeah. Uh, you say all of this with a negative connotation. I'm just saying, I, I see people with clay now, and it gives me a little tingle. And that's not a bad thing. And you know what? Me too. There you uh, go. And especially the song, right? And when Patrick Swayze comes up behind Demi Moore, I mean, come on. Right? I, I always wanted to see like a different version of it with uh, Whoopi Goldberg making out with Demi Moore. Interesting. Interesting you know, when thought. she's when he's possessing her body. Oh. I thought that would have been a more interesting movie. So Die Hard 2 is directed by Rennie Harlan. Are you guys familiar with any other Rennie Harlan films? I am not. Probably his strongest one outside of this is Cliffhanger. Yeah, yes, absolutely. That's not where my mind goes. Comic book guy, my mind goes to... Uh, you recently had a couple of molds or prosthetics made for your... your cosplay uh what version is that uh the one that i'm looking at is version four of nightmare on elm street which was directed by rennie harlan very cool yeah yeah also notoriously unfortunately he also was responsible for directing cutthroat island Uh, i was just gonna say that with his then wife gina davis yeah yeah have you ever seen cutthroat island yeah oh my gosh i haven't i have not either yeah I, i didn't think it was awful I really didn't. I watched it. I was like, eh, all right, it's okay. Yeah, but you had you kind of have a thing for pirates too, so you got a little love there. So, did you mention the writers? Uh, Stephen E. D'Souza and Doug Richardson. So, Stephen E. D'Souza, he was a really strong writer in the '80s and '90s. He he did a lot of our kind of movies. Yeah, and we've talked about him a few times in the Die Hard podcast and in the 80s action series yep. that we mm-hmm. did. Yeah, so this comes as no, as no surprise. And you know what else kind of helped this movie? Was one of the producers, Joel Silver. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Did you guys notice the score? I meant to look it up, and I didn't get that far. I mean, it's just, it's... Pretty much the same score from that's what the it, first Die Hard. That's, that's what, what I was thinking. Like. And Lethal Weapon. Because that's what it felt like. Yeah, yeah. I think it is, you know. Doesn't it start and end with the exact same song? Like the songs from Die Hard? It ends with it. Uh, uh, Let it snow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, same bit, right? Okay. Someone comes up at the end and picks them up. Uh, so Bruce Willis comes back, and we all love Bruce and Bonnie and, uh, you know, Dick. 
Uh, we only get Al for a, a few minutes. He's more like a cameo. I think that they had pushed him more. You know, the fact that they were doing, you know, same thing happening on a Christmas with similar characters and all that, it just would have been too much to bring Al back for anymore. No, it makes no sense for to bring him back. Yeah. So the way they used him was perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, so all of that aside, we have a new villain, right? Uh, Colonel Stewart, mm-hmm. played by William Sadler. Uh, what'd you guys think of this villain? I dug him. He he, he was good. Uh, the the jawline, the the lighting that they would give him, uh, his uh, his discipline, his uh, his fighting. He he came across as uh, a, as very very cold coldly efficient. Yeah. yeah. Did you I, like him as the villain? I thought he did a great job. In fact, I read somewhere that he was only told like a couple months before shooting started that his first scene was going to be naked. So he actually went out and did a lot of training to get his body in shape. He also took uh, like Tai Chi and Kung Fu classes. And uh, so he really got into the role. I thought he did a great job. Yeah. I, yeah. I liked him as the villain for sure. Um, He's no Hans Gruber, but no. he holds his own on the screen. Who is, right? If you had to choose between two, obviously you go with Hans Gruber as the better villain. Yeah. I have to agree. Totally. Yeah. I, kind of a silly question. Because yeah. <laughs> we talked about this in Die Hard that he, Hans Gruber is probably, I, for you and me, Don, top 10 villain. Oh, absolutely. Villain. Probably you oh, too, yeah. right? You've yeah. got to be, yeah, yeah, top 10. Absolutely. Colonel, I would, Colonel Seward is not. I might no. even say top no. three. Well, that's a whole different argument for a whole different podcast at a different time. Yeah, he, he was a good villain. Uh, you know, it. It's not, I, like we've said in the beginning, it's a fun watch and it's a fun ride and it's more of the first movie, right? <laughs> it's Die Hard on a Plane. Um, well, I, one thing I'm glad about is while it was very much the same characters, a very similar story, they actually went out and found an actual story that was out there and just put McLean into it. Sure. So it wasn't like they just tried to reinvent Die Hard and do the same exact thing again. They did use a, a different story. Right. Yeah, they they had a a heist of sorts, mm-hmm. you know, just you know. So, Don, why do you feel that Die Hard 2 is a Christmas movie? Well, it takes place on Christmas Eve, and, you know, it's Christmas time, and there are a lot of uh, references to Christmas, and uh, McLean's going to his in-laws for the holidays, you know what I mean? So it's very much a Christmas movie, Uh, and the fact that... It takes place on Christmas Eve, I think, just kind of solidifies that. Well, for me, especially, the uh, one of the first lines that he pretty much delivers when he's arguing with the officer over the parking ticket is the officer says back to him, Merry Christmas, or I think he says to the officer, Merry Christmas, or something like that. So right off the bat, we're getting a Merry Christmas. We're also getting the fact that you brought up. He's The whole point is that Holly's flying home to be with her in-laws for Christmas and that he's trying to get Holly home for Christmas. Right, right. 
So when we uh, reviewed Die Hard, I talked about a few main points that I think makes a Christmas movie a Christmas movie. The first main point is that it takes place at Christmas time. The second thing is that you have a character that is directly uh, that has something directly to do with Christmas. And then the third thing is that the movie is going to reflect one of these traditional Christmas themes. Love, hope, faith, generosity, redemption, family, or fear. And I think that Die Hard touches on both of those. And the way that the story arc of Die Hard happens, it is uh, very much about how the characters are directly affected by the fact that it is Christmas time, which I think does happen in Die Hard. But in Die Hard 2... Not so much. In my opinion, I, I think that Die Hard really shows that it's more its more than just being the time of year. It's about a feeling that you get with a Christmas-style story. And I don't think that that is the focus of Die Hard 2. Die Hard 2, I think, is more focused on these characters where this story could be happening at any time of the year. It doesn't matter that it is taking place at Christmas. And because of that, it, to me, I think it falls short of being a real Christmas movie. While I will agree with you almost 100% on... Almost. <laughs> almost. <laughs> on exactly what you're saying about doesn't have that... The, all the characters don't have that kind of Christmas feel that it could have happened at any time. For McLean, to me, there in between him and his wife, it does have that Christmas feel. It does have that you know miracle that he's got to pull off this whole thing again to get her home for Christmas. And the fact that we start out right in the beginning when all the terrorists are coming out of the thing, everybody's carrying Christmas presents. Their guns and stuff are all hidden in Christmas presents. So it's to me, it's got a lot of that little Christmassy stuff shoved in here and there. It, it does, and, and I get what you're saying, and, and it really kind of comes down to a feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I can watch Die Hard any time of the year. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I especially like it during Christmas. And I think a lot of it, as I agree with you, Professor, it fits all of those characteristics that you named off. And so, yes, Die Hard is a Christmas movie to me. Die Hard 2, on the other hand, uh, doesn't have that, or it, I shouldn't say that. Uh, Die Hard 2, I think, is set at Christmas time, can be a Christmas movie. But it's not one of those movies that makes you feel Christmas timey. And I'll tell you why, at least for me. It is the subtle addition of the little sleigh bells, right? That little sleigh bell sound. Mm-hmm. Ting, 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 ting. Yeah. We get that all throughout the first one. Mm-hmm. And that kind of gives us a feeling and it kind of puts us in the mood. This one is very much is an action movie that takes place at Christmas. You know what I mean? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it falls into the Christmas movie category for me, but way, way, way down at the bottom. We also have you know to think I mean? about it this way, too. What is McLean trying to save? His Christmas holly. <laughs> Just like he did in the first one. Yeah, and holly yeah. is a Christmas term. Yeah, so, yeah, you get no arguments from me. Mm-hmm. I think it's a Christmas movie. I don't think it's a... No, I... I don't think it's a strong <laughs> Christmas movie by any stretch of the imagination, but I feel it falls in the category, thus justifies this podcast. And, and I agree with Professor in that, you know, if I'm going to go out and pick a movie to really get me in the spirit of Christmas, Die Hard 2 is going to be way down my list. Yeah, I got a bunch of other Christmas movies to watch before I watch this for my Christmas boost. Well, I got to be honest with you, this probably doesn't get watched for me at Christmas. Through that. You know what I mean? So, 
On Christmas Eve, two years after the events of the previous film, John McClane is now a lieutenant with the LAPD, who arrives at Dulles International Airport to pick up his wife, Holly. Meanwhile, a plane carrying corrupt foreign military leader General Ramon Esperanza is also headed to Dulles, under extradition for using U.S. funds to buy drugs. Waiting to meet Esperanza's plane is disgraced former Colonel William Stewart and a group of ex-military sympathizers who supported Esperanza's action. Suspicious, McLean follows two of Stewart's men into a restricted baggage sorting area where a gunfight ensues. McLean kills one man, but the other escapes. All right, so this film opens with the same logo. It comes in, it says Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Well, before we even get into this, let me ask you this. What do you think of the term Die Harder? They were probably looking at just a macho, machismo, like, Die Harder, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, maybe. What about you? I don't know. I, I just thought it was just telling us that we are revisiting the same story. Yeah, just with her. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I've i always thought it was kind of strange. I die think, harder. And it's become the butt of so many jokes ever since there. Yeah, right? it just seems like all of the diehards have some really cliche kind of sequel names. Uh, I disagree with you. I think the first and third are original. Well, I think the, I'm talking about after the first. Right. Okay, yep. well, I think the third one's fine. Uh, die Hard with a Vengeance. Mm-hmm. Live free, die hard. Kind of pushing it. Mm-hmm. Kind of pushing it. And then a good day to die hard. I'm with you on that one. All of John. them, except <laughs> for horrible. Die Harder, the additional ones all sound like James Bond movies to me. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But they're fucking John McClane, right? Mm-hmm. Die hard. And so uh, we meet McClane. He's at the airport. His uh, mother-in-law's car is getting towed. Um, so we know that he's at the airport, and he's at Dallas International. So what do you guys think of our reintroduction, our setting, if you will? This whole opening, I thought, you know, while it was a little weird, it did a good job of getting us up to speed of what's happened and why he's in L.A. and all that. Absolutely. It's all in the dialogue, Or in D.C., right? yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just a cop in L.A. because my wife took a job there. I'm really a cop from New York, blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. He just kind of gives us the uh, quick rundown, quick rundown. Uh, and then we're introduced to Stuart uh, doing naked yoga. Mm-hmm. Why naked yoga? Hey, don't knock it till you try it, buddy. Okay, you know what? Fair enough. And fuck, I guess if I looked like uh, Stuart at that point, well, why not? And so when he's done with his naked yoga, I like the bit when he starts walking out of his hotel room and then everybody falls into line. The synchronized execution how, of how do they all know room? exactly when to come out of the doors? Were Did, they all sitting there looking through the peepholes? Well, and well, if you notice, uh, it's almost the way their rooms were arranged is how in the order they were supposed to come out in. And so I'm wondering, did they check in that way too? Because the guy who is at the very end, I think that's Cochran. um, He stays at the very end and while the other guys file in and that it was so uniform. It was pretty funny. It it was meant to tell the audience that these motherfuckers mean business. Yeah. They all kind of just do the zipper. They zipper in one by one. Yeah. Perfectly. Yeah. I was pleasantly, uh, I was the first time I, I remember uh, watching Terminator two. And then having uh, and then having Robert Patrick show up when I watched Die Hard Two again. It's like, oh hey, he's the Terminator. Yeah, and who else is in it? 
I could not believe that. And I did not recognize him at all. It kind of, I was like, wow, there he is. It was, it's only like his fifth or sixth movie. Yeah. Do you know who we're talking about? I do, but I don't remember. Who is it? John Leguizamo. Yeah. Well, he's, I, he's one of the gang members. Yeah. yeah. He was the guy, uh, specifically, I remember him. Uh, he is the, the cutting the torch out there at mm-hmm. the fuse box outside yeah. he's and then said, he's also uh, addressing uh, general esperanza's wounds i noticed yeah. last night he said in an interview he was supposed to have a much bigger part and that they had filmed it but they cut his scenes yeah well i mean this comes in it's 10 minutes shorter than the original i believe uh but for some reason it feels a little bit longer but yeah, having those guys come out, it, it absolutely shows us that they mean business and they are not to be fucked with. Yeah, and this movie kind of does a good job at progressing the story quickly and giving us the narrative in ways, kind of like you were saying, John, in the dialogue, McLean catching us up. And then we kind of get the idea of the overall story by a news feed that we see about General Esperanza being extradite, uh, extradited, coming to the United States. Right. One thing I had not caught i think in previous viewings that i really caught this time is on that news feed when they're talking to about general espinoza esperanza esperanza excuse me and showing him in court and they pan over a little bit it's Stuart that's sitting next to him yeah yeah so i hadn't caught that before because i know they modeled Stuart after oliver north oh really yeah he, that was the model for him oh and so it makes sense that oh that's why he's on the tv with Esperanza. Yeah, you know, I, I noticed that way back when, and I already knew he, they already showed us he was the villain, mm-hmm. so obviously, you know, it made sense. But um, yeah, we get told that he's coming to Dulles. Uh, just so happens that you know McLean's there to meet his wife's plane and uh, pick up Holly. They're gonna go spend uh, time with the in-laws, and this movie really throws back, right? Because McLean a now has a beeper. <laughs> right yeah. the beeper goes the off pager yep and you know that's coming back right they're feeding they're spoon feeding us that one uh it turns out holly is paged him from the plane and so mclean asked to call her back what do you think those charges are like back then back then yeah astronomical oh. 10 bucks a minute or something like that probably it's fucking insane right so they set up that bit and they have a nice cute little banter so that goes to show us that their relationship is mended or seems to be better better thank you did you catch and you're talking about how much that call probably cost did you catch that holly's still working for nakitoma nakitomi yeah because she she has a file folder yeah that's at the end when they're getting ready to land yeah for sure and then the other little moment that i enjoyed at this poor thing he limped for a week (laughs) they start talking about tasing the little dog yeah (laughs) which again it's coming back Oh, and then right after that, then we have McLean and Stuart bump into each other at the airport. God, you look really familiar to me. Yeah, I get that. I've been on TV. Yeah, me too. And so, you know, and then we are also introduced to uh, the reporter, right, Coleman. Uh, We know she's coming back at some point. And so uh, McLean just has to wait for... You know, Holly's playing. I love that when he they're talking, he goes, okay, I'll see you in about a half hour. Nowhere in that universe were they going to make a call, land, get their bags, get off the fucking tarmac, get off the fucking plane in a half hour. No way. <laughs> so what does McLean do? What any person would do. He goes to the bar when there were still bars at the airport, 
And you just start smoking cigarettes. Oh, there's still bars at the airport. Yeah, but you can't smoke in the airport no, anymore. Smoke, no. And I, I remember thinking, God, that looks so good. Because <laughs> <laughs> I travel a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And I can't fucking smoke in the airport. But um, it's during this time that, you know, McLean becomes an observer. And he observes the two military-looking guys at the high boy. Well, his cop instincts come out. I love the fact that McLean spotted uh, Cochran's sidearm from that distance, also being covered by his jacket. What I, what I appreciated was McLean notices two cops walking and then immediately notices the guy put his, you know, his foot and push the present underneath the table like something suspicious. Sure. And then he goes up to say something to the cop, and it turns out it was the same cop that gives him the ticket. So I think goes, Vito is his name or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, excuse me, officers. I think I just saw... Saw what? Elvis. <laughs> Elvis Presley. Such a Bruce Willis moment. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He, he's got a couple of them in this film, for sure. And then um, he goes on and he follows these guys because he obviously didn't say anything to the cop. Well, before we get there... Can we talk a little, little bit about the siege of the church? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this film does a good job of setting everything up, although I think it takes a little bit too long to set up. But anyways, the bad guys obviously have to take control of a fucking airport, so they need whatever it is they need, the power, the the network, all of that shit, right? And some of it runs through this old abandoned church. What you guys think of this bit? Well, it seems like... In every action movie we watch, there's always the same cliche. You know, we can t- say the same about Violent Night. We can say the same about Die Hard 1, where there's always some innocent, clueless person who answers the door or says hi to somebody and gets a bullet to the head. Oh, that <laughs> that just happens, man. That I just mean, happens everywhere. In Die Hard, it was the people, the guy you know at the front desk. In Violent Night, it was the guy at the gate. In this movie, it's the poor guy at the church. Yeah, I mean, that shit happens. You Did you think it wasn't going to happen? No, but it's always fun. It's, it's interesting that it's, you know, in the beginning, it's always just some innocent, clueless person. Yeah, that's how that's how they have, that's how the filmmakers have to tell you that these guys are assholes and don't give a fuck. And don't like them. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to hate these bad guys. Um, and the line's even more brutal, right? This is Buckwheat. The clubhouse is open. No, not that one. You know, part of me is dying with this church. And the guy just goes, right. oh, you're right about that. Boom. <laughs> so, I mean, it's very fucking cold-hearted. And I kept thinking, too, he shoots him. The guy falls down and lays there. Did they leave him there the whole time? No, because no. they turned they turn that into the base of operations. Yeah. He'd be he's right out, in the middle of everything. Yeah, he's outside turning into a popsicle. popsicle. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we are established that the bad guys have taken over the church, which uh, we assume will be the command center. And then we go back to uh, McLean following the two guys into the baggage area. And he sees them fucking around with their um, uh, system. It, it turns out they were installing the device that lets the bad guys tune into all the air traffic control tower chatter. One thing I appreciated about this scene was, and I thought, you know, we're just going to get a typical John McClane fight scene. He had to fight two guys at once. Oh, yeah. So that was the big difference with this scene. We did get a few callbacks, though, to the original Die Hard, like the one where McClane loses his gun and the guy's walking up you know, almost over him and everything. It even happens later on in the movie as well. So this begins what uh, I uh, get mild- mildly bothered by in some of these action movies, and this suffers from it as well. The fact that John McClane has, 
I don't know, 47 bullet clips along with them, and each clip holds somewhere between 12 to 18 rounds. Yeah, why, why is that so hard to believe, Professor? All I'm saying is that it's a little pet peeve of mine that I begin to notice over, uh, over uh, it continuing to show itself throughout the story arc. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. For me, it's something similar in that John McClane is always the crack shot, and even these military guys, first of all, they can't hit a person, but the guy from a distance can hit an aerosol can super quick. Yeah, well, he was just trying to stop McLean from spraying his buddy in the eyes with aerosol. Yeah, but none of them can hit him. None of them can even get their bolts close to him. Okay, so let's say that Cochran puts one right between his eyes right there and then. Yeah. No Die Hard 3. Yeah, no Die Hard 4. What the so, fuck, John? So yeah, so I'm, I'm confused about what you're saying. We could have passed the torch right away. And then so he uh, kills one of the guys, the other one gets away, and then we get to meet... Uh, Captain Lorenzo, airport police, uh, because McLean walks out and the press is there and he gets all pissed off. He's all, this is a crime scene. You got to shut it down. And every so, time that Lorenzo walks out, I always hear the Hill Street Blues music in the background. <laughs> Not the NYPD blue? No. Uh, McLean and Lorenzo meet and they have it out. And ultimately, uh, Lorenzo tells McLean to fuck off, right? It's Christmas Eve. We have everybody coming in. Well, we can't shut it down now. Uh, poor policing, obviously, but it's 1990. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? In the meantime, we get to meet Thornburg on the plane, and he's right next to Holly. And so now we have our other antagonist introduced to us in, in the movie. So let's, let's work this out a little bit. And you have to assume that Holly's coming from L.A., Going to Chicago. It's five and a half hours, right? Why does Thornburg get to sit in first class for five hours and then get booted to coach in the last half hour? You know, I was debating that because you had brought that up before, and I thought maybe what had happened was he before he got on the plane, they told him he didn't have a first class seat because they were already pissed off at him. They were pissed off because of his, what, sluts in the sky story or something right, like right, that. Right. So they had already booted him back. I felt like maybe he snuck up to first class took an empty seat, and they had to tell him, no, 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 you go back, you don't have a first-class seat. Or he tried to go up to first-class and just take advantage of a few things, that he never had a first-class seat, yeah. like on the plane. Yeah, that, that, he'd bumped that, down. that doesn't make any sense either, only because even if he did sneak up there, you're telling me that the flight attendants didn't see him for five hours? I don't know, because they made some comment of, you're not in first class, you can't take advantage right. no, of I, it. No, I, I, I get it. But what I'm saying is, why does it take him five hours? Did he get up from his coach seat, go up, and then they did they threw say? Him back? Did they say? I don't he, know. Did they say? I just had, thought it was weird. Did they say he had been in there five hours, or that the flight had been five hours? And well, Holly he had just gone up. Holly had just said, "We'll see you in a half hour." Yeah, but I'm thinking he hadn't been in that seat for five hours. That he had recently just tried to sneak up and then got pushed back again. And, but and this is the first time Holly's seen him. Maybe he wasn't in that seat before. I don't know. Well, other seats just magically open when you're in the sky? Okay, it's just poor writing. Okay, thank you. That's all you had to fucking say from the beginning. He just likes to defend. With the help of his friend, Sergeant Owl Powell, he discovers that the dead man's fingerprints correspond to an American soldier who died in a helicopter accident two years ago. Putting this together with Esperanza's imminent arrival, McLean reports his concerns to the airport police chief, Carmine Lorenzo, and the air traffic controller director, Ed Trudeau. 
but neither believe him. They are convinced when Stewart and his men operating out of a church on the outskirts of the airport cut all communications with incoming planes, disables all runway lighting, and demands Esperanza's plane be allowed to land without interference. Under Stewart's direction, Trudeau orders all the air traffic controllers to have all planes in Dulles airspace hold in the air despite their low fuel warning. So McLean's all pissed off, right? And he thinks that Lorenzo's just a big fucking waste of space, right? And Carmine, what sets off the metal detectors first? And so he runs down and he decides he's going to take the fingerprints of the guy. So he goes to a like a car rental counter or whatever, gets ink, paper, you know, does the whole thing. And then he uh, calls his buddy. I do like the comment of when he takes the fingerprints of the dead body and says, I don't think it's going to make it, boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very, very John McClane. I don't think this is going to make I it. I did read that, uh, of course, they wanted to pump up the one-liners, that actually Bruce Willis did a lot of ad-libbing in this movie, and I think it worked. Oh, I believe it. And he, of course, he, Yeah, it worked. He was encouraged to do it if he felt, the, if, if he felt compelled to drop a one-liner. Which was smart of Rennie Harlan to let Bruce do that because Bruce Willis was Bruce Willis. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because of this film, Rennie Harlan does get uh, Cliffhanger and Nightmare on Elm Street 4. So, smart guy. And then after this, we are introduced to Esperanza on the plane. And he's on his way, and you know something's going to happen. They're just setting it up. Uh, it's very foreboding. Yeah. You know what I mean? Did yeah, you? when he's sitting there with the, with the soldier. Did, he, did you catch where Esperanza was from? Uh, Valverde. And where have we heard of that fictional country before? Uh, in a... God, I wish I knew the episode number. Commando. Yeah, that was from Commando. Also written by John D'Souza. What? So it's interesting. And and I thought, uh, whoever the actor was, I, I don't remember his name, but I thought he did a great job as Esperanza. Oh, I thought he was wonderful. You know, He, he uh, felt like a general. Yeah, he, uh, the general who's the top dog, but not the muscle, right? That's mm -hmm. Stuart. So I thought, I thought all of the villains played well. Again... No Hans Gruber in company, but they played well. I liked his interaction with the soldier that was on the plane. You know, you're just could, kind of talking to him. Well, could you take these cuffs off? You know, like I'm not going anywhere. He's like, no, sorry, General, I cannot do that. You are a good soldier. Why are you putting an accent on it? Because he had an accent. <laughs> I want to go for realism here. All right, buddy. However, right. instead of freedom, could you give me a light? And then you're thinking something's going to happen right there. And then it doesn't. Yeah, this cuts away. So that is that is uh, that's good tension building there. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. This this movie tries to build a lot of tension, and sometimes it succeeds. And then we cut to the church. The church is getting all of its equipment set up. We we watch all the equipment being powered up, and and then we're online. What do you think of the scene where we again can kind of get a look at who Stewart is by the way he interacts with? The uh, soldier who comes back from the baggage claim. So the, the guy who lives comes back and Stuart pulls the gun on him and it's empty, but he shoots it and he goes, uh, he was very, uh, very matter of fact, right? Uh, did you complete your objective? And the guy says, yes. And he says, but we lost Cochran. And he says, uh, so the damage is minimal, right? So it's collateral damage, right? He says, but the consequence is severe or whatever. Mm -hmm. Puts the gun. He says, fail me again. And the chamber won't be empty. The mission was a success. How did he fail him? It's not his fault Cochran got killed. He didn't bring back the other soldier. That, no, that, that's not his responsibility. Uh, true, How did he fail him? True that. 
No, yeah. I, I feel the same Stuart's way. Stuart's a fucking dick. How about that? I thought the way that the other soldier kind of looked and kind of gave that grimace towards Stuart, that we were going to get more of a story there, that maybe this was the one that was going to turn on him. Well, then you were way overthinking oh, a 1990s action yeah. diehard sequel. Because I'd be pissed the guy put a gun to my head. And you're right. It felt like he had succeeded, even though now kind of people had an idea of something going on. Yeah. Yeah. So the bad guys are all tapped in and then comes, you know, we have, we are oh, so briefly Al Powell. We get our Al Powell cameo. Yeah. Yeah. He calls him and he's the one that gives John the f- information about the fingerprints. Did you like how he had a Twinkie with him? Oh, uh, uh, what was McLean's first line? Get the Twinkie out of your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> nice little callback. Did you kind of, I don't know, maybe in the back of your head thought, oh, now Al's back on desk duty again after what happened in the no, Die Hard 1? Dude, no. What? Well, he's not, a, it doesn't seem like he's out you know, on the beat again anymore. He's back at a desk. Or he was just there for that day. You don't know how sure. it works. Just so happens he caught him at the one time he's probably at his desk. Uh, uh, McLean's his partner. He knows. Well, not partner, partner, but, no, but I mean, he knows. Friend. Maybe they talk to each other and they know each other's schedule. Yeah. And I thought maybe he decided to go back to desk duty. You know what? He did. Good job. Way to call that one. You called that one, buddy. Good job. Thanks for taking the soul out of him. Yeah. Merry Christmas to me. And then we are now introduced to Trudeau up in the tower. I like this actor. You know, he's a congressman. Yes. Fred, uh, what's it? Fred something? Fred Thompson. Fred Thompson, yes. Did you know that he was very offended by all the swearing in the movie? That doesn't surprise me at all. He actually went to the director and asked if they could cut the swearing. And obviously they said no. But so he insisted, you notice his character is one of the few characters in the entire movie does not say one swear word. Uh, I didn't notice it because I didn't think it would feel out of place that he did not. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? He looked like a fucking typical, powerful person in charge of a certain color so i mean it came across very much like he was because i'd seen him in uh on tv and in if different movies and he always, always kind of plays the same character so no that doesn't surprise me at all okay. yeah i i he plays the same kind of character in another movie that i, I would love for us to review the hunt for red october oh yeah he yeah. does I got a question. How the fuck does somebody just waltz into the air traffic control tower? When you were John motherfucking McClane, and you can do badge. whatever you want. Yeah, his badge probably got him up there. I don't know, man. I'm looking at that. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah. How does somebody just waltz in there? Yeah. And, you know, throughout this this whole leading up to all of this, McClane's been walking through the airport, and we've gotten referenced a couple of times. Oh, yeah, you're the guy from L.A. You're the Nakatomi guy. So, I mean, it's not like he's not known. Well, what's funny is you bring up the fact that he just waltzes up there. So does the reporter. She ends up making her way up there as well. Well, she's, she sneaks her way up. Yeah. Uh, um, and I think it's at this point, too, right? Because he walks up, and uh, this is where we get McLean in the control tower telling Carmine and Trudeau, someone's about to seriously fuck with this airport. Mm-hmm. I love that line, you know. And then you're right. Uh, fucking Fred Thompson says, well, what the hell does that mean? That's not really a curse, right? No. But I love that bit. Yeah, it's a really good moment. And just so happens, at that moment, everything starts shutting down. We get the speech. The bad guys call. I felt like this speech was very... Rem- now, this, I think, would be a callback uh, to Hans Gruber's speech, mm-hmm. the introduction. Um, but uh, Colonel Stewart uh, says that, you know, we are in charge we have your airport under control. We want 
this plane. You, We all know what it is, right? It's Esperanza. We want Esperanza. And if you don't give him to us, we're going to fuck with you. And uh, after it's all done, after his whole speech and everything, I love when Trudeau looks at McLean and goes, McLean, is this what you expected? Is this what you had in mind? Yeah. <laughs> McLean's response, this is only the beginning. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then he has, and then he tells everybody, you know, to, to contact all the planes. And then one line that always just sticks with me, stack them, pack them and rack them. He has a couple of those R steel kill, right? Mm -hmm. When they send the SWAT team. So yeah, stack them, pack them, rack them. The reporter and McLean, they get thrown out and then they're back into the elevator and then McLean has got to slip away. And this is a, a what, John? A callback. It's definitely a callback. Yeah. Because when he looks down and goes, don't worry. I've done this before. <laughs> Definitely. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah. McLean becomes worried about Holly's plane and enlists the help of the airport janitor Marvin to fight back. Chief airport engineer Leslie Barnes decides to try using an unfinished antenna array to communicate with the stranded circling airplanes. Carmine sends an airport SWAT team with him, but Stewart's men kill them all and destroy the antenna. Barnes is saved by McLean. In retaliation, Stewart crashes a British airplane, killing everyone on board by impersonating air traffic control and faking the airplane's altimeter reading. Once Esperanza's plane lands, McLean wounds Esperanza before Stewart and his men arrive. They blow up the plane and take Esperanza to the church, but fail to kill McLean. A U.S. Special Forces team arrives, led by Major Grant, for whom Stewart is a protege. What do you think of our meeting Marvin? Oh, I thought he was a uh, a guy to help us, uh, a character to help us navigate McLean through the intricacies of the airport. I almost kind of felt like maybe he was our new Al no. for this movie. No, I don't think so. Because they don't build, Al and John have a, an emotional bond. These two are just, he's, Marvin's just helping him. Yeah, but now McLean owns him a, owes him a coat. A liner. For a coat, Line but I mean, that's not like saying it's not like the conversation Al and John have when yeah. John's picking glass out of his feet, right? So I, I thought it was just a character to help m m move McLean through the uh, airport and gives us the audience a reason to believe why that's happening. If McLean was just showing up uh, at random spots or conveniently at the spots where shit was going down at the airport without any guidance. At some point, someone would have said bullshit. Yeah, one of the things I thought was interesting was, I guess these tunnels that McLean's running through and they're showing with Marvin and everything, they are actually, I think, a water treatment area or something, some building uh, in some of the things. They're not really underneath the airport. They were also the same tunnels used in Live Free and Die Hard. I thought they looked fucking familiar. I got to be honest with you. Watching it last night, I'm going, huh, interesting. I didn't make the connection. So Marvin is telling McLean how to get to the Annex Skywalk. And then from there, McLean heads off to the uh, Annex Skywalk. And I really dug the fact that we have Marvin because he's going to be able to get us around plot wise the subtleties of getting McLean where he needs to be in this vast airport. Wouldn't it yep. have been kind of humorous to not have Marvin and instead have McLean have to sit there and look at one of those airport maps on the wall and say, okay, now if I can get here over to there and then I have to get here. Yeah, dude, that would have been hilarious. 
Um, <laughs> I guess- so they're going to the Annex Skywalk because uh, Leslie Barnes, the chief dude or the mm-hmm. smart engineer guy, uh, says that we can make a antenna or we can make a radio and we can go warn the planes. Right. There's new equipment that hasn't been brought online yet, but it's ready to go. Right. So it has nothing to do with the church. So the bad guys wouldn't know. However, McLean knows it's a trap. Well, and I think, I mean, uh, what's his name? Carmine even kind of calls it out, too. He goes, I want to send the SWAT because what we can think of, they can think of. And guess what? They fucking thought of it. And it turns into a fucking ambush. Um, I I like the line. Uh, I mean, obviously, this is where we get McLean saying, you know, how does the same shit happen to the same guy twice? Crawling around this motherfucking tin can. And then as he's crawling toward the Skywalk, or the Annex Skywalk, he uh, hears the gunfire, and he's like, I hate it when I'm right. You know. I guess there was a deleted scene here that's on uh, some of the longer versions that shows the terrorist taking out the paint crew. And I'm glad they cut that. We didn't need to see all of that. I liked how it kind of started with them, you know, waiting for the people and doing the painting and kind of that surprise element. There was no reason for me to believe that that didn't, you know what I mean? Them taking out the paint crew, obviously. And I didn't even think there was a paint crew. I thought they just got uniforms and they knew that the place probably wasn't being worked on because it was Christmas. So, yeah, yeah, fucking stuff we don't need. Yeah, this scene gives me... uh, a, a little pet peeve about how this unfolds for our story because what we have in Die Hard as well as Die Hard 2, we're really not supposed to like the police. They come off as a bunch of buffoons and they're not likable and they are they are shown in a generally negative light. And to have a SWAT team that that is escorting on that on that walking escalator thing, what the fuck are you thinking? What the fuck? That is ridiculous. No well, wonder they got picked off like that because it, you don't show up to a new area like that and then just assume that people know you are going to secure the area. If you're a real SWAT team, that's what they're going to do. And they didn't do that at all. Right. They're just cannon fodder. Well, exactly. I, I also didn't like that they weren't suspicious at all when the guy stopped that moving sidewalk. Hey, you turn that back on right now. <laughs> I think you would have your guns pointed at him thinking, okay, something's wrong because you're waiting for something to go wrong. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, they were trying at this point to build a little bit of tension here, you know, because they, they had to stall long enough to get McLean through the fucking air ducts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a gunfight ensues, and as you were saying, Professor, the inept SWAT team gets dispatched, and we think that uh, Barnes is going to get it too, and Robert Patrick comes up. Why does it take... T2 to so long to fucking shoot him? Seven to ten seconds? Yeah, why? I don't know. Why put the gun to his... Why not just shoot him while he was looking at the other direction? You are walking up to him, and then you want to have the comfort knowing that the barrel is resting on his temple? I guess. I don't know. But McLean pops out of the air duct, kills T2, and then goes on and dispatches of the rest of the bad guys. What do you guys think of this whole action bit? Very diehardy, right? Certainly when he's rolling on the floor and, sh- and firing. And I don't know, he probably went through 20, 30 bullets. And I think you were saying, I think this is the bit you were talking about yeah. earlier with the guy. This one definitely is callback because he looks like the other guy and he kind of fucks with his gun like the other guy and then he's running after him mm-hmm. and at the last second, McLean gets the gun and bop, bop, bop. Well, he right? pushes the button to have the gun brought to right, him. Right, yeah. So John McLean saves the day and then Barnes is like, oh, I got to go get to the antenna. And of course, you knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. Boom, right? Yep. They blow up the antenna and 
This is going to lead us to, I think, when I saw it in 90, I thought it was disturbing. And even watching it last night, I cringed a little bit. And and I fly a lot, right? Mm. So uh, Stewart's pissed that they went after the fucking Skywalk. So I, he I asked to, to... I always had to question whether or not this was all... He knew they were going to go after the Skywalk because they already had it planned with the people there to kill whoever. And they said he knew it all along. So was he always planning to crash this plane? No, because they didn't have to go for that other equipment. What if they were just docile and did exactly what they were told to do? Right. Those guys who were there painting, they would have just been sitting there waiting. Yeah. I don't know. I think he knew all along they were going to go after it. I don't think so. No, he was just being thorough. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. Um, It turns out that they did, and he was right. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, was crashing a plane one of the... Um, it was a contingency plan. Was it one of the consequences? I don't know, because he kind of, when he says, uh, well, you guys broke the rules, and he pauses for a second, right. and it, then he says, yeah, yeah. now watch this. So I'm wondering, I felt like he just thought of it right there. Yeah, because because they're going back and forth. McLean, he, you know, he, he mentions one thing and then what are you going to do next? You know, you nuke, nuke a bomb or drop a nuke or something like that. And then he goes, no, we can do something a little bit in between. Uh, McLean, a little bit out of your league on Nightline, I thought. Hey, Colonel, blow me. (laughs) The scene for obviously it was disturbing to see the plane crash. Uh, I don't know. I think I felt like they took it up a notch of disturbing to have the stewardess talk to the little girl about, don't worry, honey, we'll be on the ground soon. Or Oh, it was definitely meant to make you feel like, oh, fuck. Assuring the old lady. The old lady, the little girl. I mean, even the banter between the uh, uh, between the cockpit and uh, Stuart, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, and then and then intercut with all the other guys. No, guys, you guys are only at 800 feet, 800 foot. So McLean, being McLean, tries to help. So he gets two flares and he runs out to the middle of the runway and he starts waving it down and it doesn't work and the plane blows up and that fucking sucks. So him fucking with the ILS system, that could never, ever happen. Oh, it did in Die Hard 2. Yes, it did. Okay, so I don't want to talk about it. In the real world, it could never happen. The ILS system is based on a series of antennas that are on the airport ground, and they transmit to the plane as it comes in to say, this is how far away you are, and this is how high you are. So for that to happen, those antennas would have to have been moved because the antennas are on the ground. And if those antennas were 200 feet underground, I don't think they'd work anyway. Yeah, well. One other thing I thought I read that I thought was interesting, and obviously we have to give some, you know, consideration. This is obviously a movie, like Don, you always point out, movie convenience, um, is that uh, all airports can, especially in the vicinity, can communicate with all planes in the airs. So if they were having a problem with communicating with their airline, you know, up top, they could have just got on the phone or got on anything and communicated with another airport, and that airport could have communicated with the planes. Uh, what do you mean on the phone? Like a landline? Yeah, they could have just gone on a landline, got Air- a payphone. Got yeah. to- well, maybe a payphone, but I'm pretty sure that the, the military group took control of all the communications throughout the airport. We had those brick phone cell phones. They could have done that. Just get you know, put someone in a car and have them just drive to the next airport. Uh, all airports would have been able to get a signal up to airplanes. Well, then, this is the dumbest fucking movie. You guys have ruined it for me. I don't even want to fucking talk about the rest of it. Well, Merry uh, Christmas. I, I, I give Die Hard to zero. Good job, guys. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for pissing in my Wheaties. What do you guys want to talk about now? You only give it a zero. Not even a zero fuck. 
No, because you guys fucked it up for everybody. We, we, you fucked it up for me. I went on to express how I feel about scenes, not necessarily how I feel about the movie. So it's this fucker over here. Why didn't they just use a big, big, big brick telephone? <laughs> Uh, where were we? Well, they do address that oh so briefly. They talk about that only five of the thirteen circling airplanes have, have the airphones. Have the airphones. Yeah, that, that's a that was that was a nice touch. Could have just called Holly on that phone. But the reason why I think they stuck around was because they were so low on fuel, and yeah. they couldn't go anyplace else. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that. And then we have Major Grant and company show up. Yes. Because McLean is sitting in the uh, uh, control room or whatever, sitting on the stairs, having a cigarette. I swear, you could smoke anywhere in that fucking airport. Ah, the good old days. Ah, the good old days. That's what I was looking for. When Grant shows up, uh, did you guys suspect at all that there was going to be a double cross here? The very first time I saw it? Yeah. No. Not until we got the different colored tape on the clips. Then I was like, what the fuck is this about? I was very... When I very, first saw it. When yeah, I first saw it. The first time I saw it, I was very confused. Why did they keep showing us the taped ammo? Right, right. And I did not make that connection, and I, I wasn't aware of the double cross. Right. And so uh, Grant comes in, and McLean's like, didn't you train, Stuart? And they kind of have this back and forth and kind of a little bit of a pissing contest. And then they really flex their muscle because they're going up to the pilot's briefing room, and they kick McLean out. He can't go up. No civilians. And so uh, he goes to find Marvin because he wants to go up to the pilot's briefing room. And meanwhile, uh, way back when, after the annex attack, they found out that the walkie-talkies that they used, which was such an integral part of the first film, that in this film, you had to have a code put in. So the first radio they find is no good, right? Uh, But Marvin, our janitor character, finds a radio and it has the code punched in. And I love McLean's reaction when he figures it out. He's just like, ah, oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And while this is happening, General Esperanza's plane has come online. They've lit up the runway, and he's coming down. And then we also have Barnes, who has an epiphany that they can probably hack into the outer marker signal to send their own message out at right. this time. Right. So the airport lights up the thing, but what Colonel Stewart, I guess, doesn't account for is Esperanza has to take over the fucking plane, right? What do you guys think of that? Okay, I was I, I was not expecting him to take over the plane. And then the other thing that I didn't get, it was, where the fuck did he get the radio? Oh, from underneath the fucking yeah, so, thing. So I, I guess somebody planted the radio oh, for yeah. him. Oh, yeah. That's immediately what I thought when he went under the, someone planted it. Uh, and it... it like you said, Professor, that sequence leaves us with the soldier lighting the thing and we think something's bad going to happen. And then when we cut back to uh, he's strangling the soldier, goes in, shoots the one pilot. How high do you have to be in the air that if you shoot a window out in the airplane, it doesn't suck everything out? Because he shoots the plane, right? They're, yeah. It's like an open window mm-hmm. in an airplane. That part always bothered me. Well, what he does have... Going in his favor is if you're coming in for, uh, if you're approaching the airport, then your airspeed is slowing down. And if you are going slower, then you wouldn't necessarily be sucked out of the airplane. I just think with all the cold air rushing in, the snow rushing in, how can you even sit in that cockpit? Right. No, I'm with you on that one. So anyways, uh, Esperanza kills the two pilots, lands the planes himself, 
<laughs> and uh, McLean figures it out because he's the, listening on the radio, right? And uh, uh, he, yes, I have to land this plane now. Wrong accent. And then McLean is listening the, to the chatter between Stewart and Esperanza, and Stewart says, "We'll have you in five minutes." Again with these fucking time frames, guys. Seriously. Because, uh, you know, Esperanza has to go through baggage claims, security, passport <laughs> check. McLean's still in the fucking tunnel. And he's all, bet your ass will have you in five minutes. And so McLean makes it out to the airfield, makes it to the plane, and Esperanza's like, ah, freedom. That I love this line. Not yet. And he smacks him in the face. And now that I got your sorry ass, I'm going to trade it for my wife. And then Stuart and his men show up. And, yeah. Firefight ensues. And this leads us to that, I don't want to call it an oh shit moment, but... Before we get there, I love the little moment. McLean shoves Esperanza back, and Esperanza pulls a gun, and then McLean yells, sit down, yeah, and he shoots that. them. So McLean gets trapped in the cockpit, and, oh, well, I was saying the oh shit moments. Every Die Hard movie has that moment where you go, oh, right? For example, the first one, obviously, is when he jumps off the roof. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the oh. And this moment when he's in the cockpit... And they're firing, Stuart's there, and then Stuart says, how many grenades do we got? Three each. Use them. And uh, all the, I love Bruce Willis's expression when all the grenades start falling into the cockpit. And he's like, ooh. Um, a, I don't know, dude. I, I think he dies way before that. But uh, he manages to put himself into the uh, pilot seat. He ejects it, and the thing blows up. And that's that oh, shit moment. How that would he that know, big, spectacular moment. How would he know how to work the ejection seat? All you do is pull it. Yeah, but like I it, wouldn't know. I wouldn't think that a plane like that would have an ejection seat. Well, the, the seat, it says eject. Okay. That's what he saw. That's what that's he saw. What, that's what it gave him the idea. Okay. The only thing that saved his life. Um, this is a fantastical moment because having all those grenades come in and I do love the priceless look on his face because there's just so many grenades. But at the, my first thought was at least the first one, maybe the second one, don't they go just right back out the window, cause those guys to jump around a little bit. I didn't even think about that. That's a great, that's a great question. And then follow up. Yeah. You know, for him to get himself a good 30 seconds passes. It's got to be at least 30 seconds before that first grenade shows up in the cockpit and he gets himself strapped in and then ejects out. Wow, those are those are some long timers. I love the line. I don't know if it's Stuart or one of his cronies says after he see, they see the parachute and then all the fire and everybody's coming, so they got to leave. Lucky fuck. <laughs> and, yeah, just a great camera shot with yeah. his face coming right up to us. Yeah, I mean, clearly special effects at the time but yeah you brought up that every diehard movie has like an oh shit moment besides having a john Mc, you know mclean in every movie do you know that something else that every single diehard movie has in it the name diehard well besides that massive gunfire Action. every every single one has an elevator scene like this one like which one where ba- basically he has to escape from an elevator. Uh, where, if, where in the third one does he escape I, from an elevator? I don't know. I was reading some of the trivia stuff, and they just said that they, they well, made then, it a point. Well, then it must be true. That the director made <laughs> it a point, or the writers, whatever, made a point to have a, an elevator scene in every single one. Where do we have an all elevator right. in Well, now three. you're going to make me fucking waste all this time thinking about it, because I, when is he in an elevator in three? We'll have to watch him. And in four. Well, I know it like the back of my fucking hand. But in... The fourth one, the elevator, he isn't necessarily escaping. It's a shootout inside the elevator. But that's an elevator. 
I'll give them elevator scene. Yeah, I'll give them that one. They called it an elevator scene. No, 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 no. no, I'm saying I'll give them that one. But in the third one, now I'm now I want to know, so I'll have to think about it. Police station. No. Oh yes. Oh, what was the lottery numbers? And he sees Hugo, and then he gets the yes. Yes. yes, elevator scene. They call it a key scene, key oh, yeah. elevator scene in every movie. Yeah, there you go. All mm. right. The trivia guys were right. So uh, Esperanza escapes. Uh, McLean makes it back to the hangar, and this is uh, where, uh, you know, Grant confronts uh, McLean. And, right. And I think this is one of my favorite lines, right? Uh, Grant looks at him and goes, McLean, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. You were the wrong guy at the wrong place at the wrong time. And Bruce story of my life so good and at the same time we have thornberg his people are able to find the message being broadcast out to the airplanes and now he's getting to his own newsroom to get himself onto the airwaves via the news channel yeah he's recorded the whole conversation yeah i love that bit did you pack the receivers with the care uh, check-in i wouldn't trust those assholes with that <laughs> and that's so true that's such a av tech guy thing to do then we have barnes mcclain discussing the idea about having a, of where to look for Colonel Stewart. And they are they decide to head out and see if they can find Colonel Stewart's location hideout on their own. Yeah. Yeah, there's just yeah. a few places he could be. Grant's men and McLean attack the church. McLean kills one of Stewart's men and gives chase with his gun. But the mercenaries escape on snowmobiles. Confused as to why he failed to wound anyone, McLean realizes the gun was filled with blanks, meaning Grant's team is secretly cooperating with Stewart, and the firefight was staged. Grant, Stewart, their men, and Esperanza all rendezvous at an airport hangar where a Boeing 747 that they demanded is waiting for them. On Holly's flight, arrogant reporter Richard Thornburg becomes suspicious as to why the plane hasn't landed. He taps into the cockpit communications and records an earlier surreptitious message transmission from Barnes to all the circling airplanes describing the situation. In the airplane's lavatory, he broadcasts the recording live on television, leading to a panic in the airport terminal which prevents McLean and Carmine from getting to the 747. Holly subdues Thornburg with a fellow passenger stun gun. McLean asks a news crew to fly him via helicopter to intercept the 747. McLean jumps onto the wing and uses his coat to jam the aileron, preventing the plane from taking off. McLean kills Grant and in the struggle with Stewart, opens the fuel valve in the wing. After Stewart kicks McLean off the wing, McLean uses a cigarette lighter to ignite the fuel trail, exploding the plane and killing everyone on board. The fire trail also serves as a landing guide for all airborne aircraft, including Holly's, to land safely. After McLean and Holly are reunited, Marvin picks them up in his airport cart and drives them away. Roll credits. So as you were saying, Professor uh, Barnes comes up to McLean and says, hey, you know, given you said that those guys got out there pretty quick, right? Mm -hmm. McLean's like, yeah. He goes, that means they could have only come from a couple of a few places. So let's go check them out. So they go check them out and they find the church. And I like what McLean says, you know, he's, this guy's walking back and forth, could be a century. And he goes, or he could just be walking around. And McLean says, walking over his own footprint, right? So he knows this is shit. So McLean goes to have a fight with this guy. Uh, did you guys find this maybe similar to something that we had just talked about? This death scene, maybe? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of Violet Night. Yeah, with the uh, yeah. thing to the eye. Yep, for yeah. sure. Yeah, that's what I thought of when I saw this. And I th- and I thought when I saw Violent Night that obviously they had gotten the inspiration from Die Hard too. Oh, sure, absolutely. I mean, a lot of movies used the ice pickle, ice pick to the eye. Even Christmas Vacation had an ice pick come in and shatter a stereo. I mean, it, it's used a lot. Yeah, and, all about the icicles. And we talked about the double cross of Die Hard 2 in Violent Night as well. So, And guess what? Here it is, right? So uh, Grant's team shows up, and Stewart's team's waiting for him, and this is where they all switch their clips. Gentlemen, we have a situation. And they all put the clips with the blue tape on. And that's obviously, that's one of the things that calls out to everybody that, oh, something's up with Grant. Uh, do you know there was, like, I guess four hints throughout the movie or early on when we first meet Grant to know that he's doing a double cross? Um, hints? I didn't catch any of them. Uh, the the One of the first one was Stuart and his crony in the very beginning are walking through the airport and he goes, we had a last minute change in personnel. Yep. That was one of them. Uh, the other one's the tape. The blue tape is one. Um, there are two more. I think the fact that he says... Uh, when Stuart and Grant are talking, he goes, I know the drill just as much as you do, or when they're talking to each other. I think that's one. It's close. It's actually when they're communicating and Grant is saying, I'm going to come and get you and I'm going to get all this stuff. If you look look at uh, Stuart's men in the background, they're all smiling and happy and everything while all these boasts are going on. And so that's supposed to be another hint of they know he's full of shit. He's not. He's lying right there. Yeah, that's what I just said. Yeah. So I'm right. Uh, there's three, and then the fourth one is when he probably slits the dude's throat. Well, by then we know that's not that's not technically the fourth one. The other hint is when uh, McLean calls in about the church, and the guy writes it down on a little post-it number, the address, and uh, Grant walks up, grabs the post-it note, crumples it up before even looking at it, kind of throws it away, and says, "Okay, we know where he's at. Let's get going." He never looked at the address. But I guess they say that the blue and red tape is supposed to be a huge hint, which it is that they put in the blue. That is actually a military, it's something practiced in the military, that they always put red tape around live rounds and blue tape around non-live rounds. Oh, sure, that doesn't surprise me. And now we have Major Grant and his crew show up at the church and surround it, but not quite surround it they only surround three sides of it and i remember at the time thinking why are you only surrounding three sides of it well because they're in on it they have to let them get away exactly and so they get away via snowmobile but you know mclean not letting that shit go you know grant was perfectly fine letting them get away because that was part of the plan right and so he takes off and then uh grant and the team are kind of securing stuff and then carmine goes hey where the fuck is mclean and then we cut back to and he's on the snowmobile and this action piece happens and we find out that uh after mclean's snowmobile gets blown up he takes out the clip and he goes i fucking i I had had my my sights sights. Yeah. yeah he looks at the bullets and he looks up and he's like oh fuck and so you know, the fix is on. And then Grant and his men are going to apparently take down uh, Colonel Stewart, right? So they're getting geared up to go, and this is where they kill the change of personnel. And McLean gets back to Carmine. He, he, he pushes Carmine, and then he starts shooting the gun, right? That is, what are you doing in a room full of police officers? You're going to get yourself shot. How does nobody shoot him? They're all inept. 
I'm just wondering whether or not Carmine went one or two in his pants. I'm going to say both. That's what I think, too. He, he does a really good job looking scared. Yeah. After right after he's done, he goes here. They're blanks. Look, it was all a setup. And I love Carmine's fucking uh, reaction. I want all personnel in riot gear. Blah blah blah. He's not gonna argue minutes. with McLean anymore, right? And then he he takes his gun out, looks at his clip, cocks it, and says, "Time to kick ass." <laughs> yep. So you know, Carmine to the rescue. I just feel like at this point, Carmine has realized maybe I pushed McLean a little too far. Uh, maybe i don't know maybe or it's all just coming together yeah. right if carmine's finally figuring it out so grant and stewart they uh reunite they know that you know the double cross was in stewart's men were in on it and uh they're getting ready to leave and in the meantime holly's plane is running out of gas uh but thornburg has figured out what's going on and he goes into the lavatory and he gets on the station and um he broadcasts that there's terrorists at the airport. Fucking stupid. And uh, what Trudeau says, you stupid son of a bitch. And so uh, panic ensues. Absolutely. How could it not? And then uh, McLean is trying to get to the hangar to get to the plane. Well, I love how Tru- our, uh, Thornburg says on the thing, we expect to be heavy losses at the airport and blah, blah. So he's telling people you're going to die if you're at the airport. Yeah, pretty much. And so uh, this is where we find out that uh, Carmine's brother, Vito, is the same cop that gave McLean the ticket in the opening. Uh, but traffic jam can't do it. So McLean has to call in a favor or asks for a favor, uh, finds Coleman, the reporter, and she takes him up in the helicopter and they go after the 40, 747. I love the, uh, the whole thing. You know, I like when they kind of add some elements of realism to these, you know, action movies of McLean says, you know, Fly, you know, fly the helicopter in front of the plane. I'm not flying the helicopter in front of the plane. Are you crazy? Yeah, well, that's just silly, right? <laughs> I'm not playing chicken with a two, airplane. 200 ton. Yeah, that's fucking crazy. And then I love McLean's kind of, he just kind of looks around and goes, well, can you get me over the top of it? <laughs> he's got to do what he's got to do, right? And that's what McLean does. Right. But let me ask you this real quick. They have the equipment. They, they could probably get restored. What if Esperanza gets away? Who fucking cares? I was thinking about that in the original. I mean, was it worth, you know, all those people dying in the plane crash, you know, all losing the SWAT team, everybody else? Well, no, no, no. I'm, well, uh, you're talking overall. I'm talking yeah. at this point. Yeah. Right? They already have the church back. You can't take back the plane. They, they fucked up. They yeah. went after the Annex Skylock, right? But at this point, they have the equipment back. I know that it's wired to blow, but couldn't they, I don't know. What, what's the airport doing at this point? I don't know. I guess we wouldn't have a movie if... Well, McLean can't let him win. I mean, you and see the, it throughout the movies. He can't well, let it go. That's a good point. And that's what he says, why he's going out onto the airport wing. It, why is he doing this crazy stunt? Which is a callback to, I promise if you let me survive this, I'll never go up in a tall building again. You know, he's talking to himself. Uh, John, what the fuck are you doing? I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. But he also said it's because I, I hate I hate to lose. Right, right. Uh, so he gets onto the plane, and Grant, him and Grant have a fight, and he wins. I love how Stuart is just watching from the doorway the whole time while Grant's getting his ass kicked. Yeah, well, I mean... I think he's confident that Grant is going to kick McLean's ass. I think he is, too. Well, when Grant falls off and is slowly being sucked into the jet turbine, I kept thinking, why doesn't Stuart just run out and jab a knife into McLean? Because that's not honorable. He's, he's not a an honorable guy. 
No, but he's a soldier. Yeah. There's certain way soldiers mm-hmm. die, I guess. And so, and plus he's arrogant, right? He wants to he wants to kick McLean's ass because he jumps out on the wing and he says, "Time for the main event." At this point, when Grant goes in, it's like, "Yeah," but then I am also thinking at the same time, "Wait a minute, you have a bird that'll take an airplane down, right? Potentially, this is a whole guy." That's a lot bigger than a bird. Yeah, should have blown up the engine. That that engine should have been fucked. Right. Oh. That that should have been the well the, but, the end of the plane. Besides that, I'm sure he probably still had like a grenade or two on him or some kind of you know ammo clips or something that would have set off the jet turbine too, wouldn't it? Uh, maybe I don't know. Maybe he got comfortable when they got on the plane. Took it all off. Take that could off. be, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, because because they thought they were going to get away. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Stewart jumps out on the plane. They have a fight, and I knew Willis wasn't going to win this one. Man, right? Stewart, he looked good fighting. He's a badass. Yeah, he looked good, and we knew that because of naked yoga, right? Uh, tai Chi. You know, conveniently enough, McLean grabs onto the fuel handle just as he's getting kicked off, and he opens up the fuel line, and now the plane is leaking gas. Wouldn't Esperanza would have known that as he's trying to pull up? Doesn't the gauge go down? You'd think so. Plus, you'd think a little warning thing would have gone, meh, 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 right. meh. I thought that he he would eventually notice that, but you don't necessarily notice that in that moment that you're focused on taking off. I think the alarm sounding is more... Uh, plausible than at this scenario. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that bothered me was he pulls the fuel thing as he's following a uh, falling, which means, you know, he'd hit the ground and probably roll a few times as he's hitting the ground and everything. He ended up right at the spot where the gas starts, you know, towards the plane, that gas should have been dripped, you know, farther back from him. So when he lit it, you think it would have lit him on fire too? So that's what you want to see. You want to see John McClane? You I don't want to see a human it, torch. But I thought it was a little bit convenient that he fell and landed and stopped right at where that gas line, you know, on the ground started. Oh, this was convenient. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was a Christmas miracle. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. Either way, he lands up there, and of course, we've been waiting all movie for this, and this becomes the staple. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. And he lights the trail of gas, and he blows up. I love his reaction as the plane blows up and, you know, all the fire. He He's laying on the ground, and he's yelling, and he says, Ollie, it's your fucking landing light, and because he knew, right? Mm-hmm. And just he felt so, um, it was so accomplished. You know, he, he set out to do his fucking job. And so all the planes start landing, and Bruce Willis saves the day. I love the bit when he's walking through all, all the planes landing, which, how did they land so close to each other without I, hitting well, each other? When they were coming down, and they were one by one <laughs> behind like, each other. They were like this far behind each other. <laughs> I'm thinking one of them went a little too slow or something on their landing yeah, right up the ass. Yeah, totally. Um but he's yelling for Holly all around, and he finally sees her. And I love how he just says, "Hi." <laughs> <laughs> did did that give you kind of a Rocky vibe, though? You know, no. When he's going, "Holy," no. Have you seen Rocky? Yeah, when at uh, the end when he's the like, Adrian. I'm just making sure you've seen the movie. Okay. And then, uh, you know... Uh, I like hers of, uh, why does this keep happening to us? Yeah. <laughs> Even calling out what the audience is thinking. Yeah, and then uh, she says, uh, I heard there were terrors at the airport. And he goes, oh, yeah, I heard that too. <laughs> He's a nonchalant. And then Thornburg gets off the fucking plane and he asks that old uh, that lady to help him. And she 
fucking hits him or flips him off or tells him to fuck off or Calls whatever. him an asshole. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, Marvin shows up and he says, I'll be damned if I'm cleaning this up. And uh, let it snow plays. And well, did you catch too that uh, what's his name shows up with the traffic ticket and rips up the traffic ticket? Did you get this at my airport? And yeah. he rips up the traffic ticket. And all I kept thinking was, the car is still impounded. Well, he'll get it out. So, I mean, is the car going to be back in the time for them to actually go home, or are they going to have to get a ride home? And the mother-in-law is going to be a little pissed off. It was her car after all. I understand that, but they just went through a terrorist ordeal. Who gives a fuck about the car? The mother-in-law. No, after they find out that she that they were at the airport and her daughter almost died, she didn't fucking care about the car. They can get they, they can go get the car tomorrow. They can go get the car the next day. The car's in the impound. It's not going anywhere. They're not going to get charged for it. Carmine ripped up the ticket. But remember, now it has a dent, a dent on the bumper, too. Well, that's a different story. How many movies are there in the Die Hard franchise? Uh, good question, comic book guy. Uh, there are technically five. The fifth one, probably Overkill. That reminds me of another series that had a lot of movies, if you include Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Oh, fuck. Really? And now it's time for John's... Moment. This is the point in our podcast where I take whatever movie we are reviewing and compare it to the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings. So for Die Hard 2, Die Harder, that is no exception. This one relates just as well. John McClane is our Aragorn. That makes Holly his Arwen. He's the king of this movie. He is the leader. He is the one who's got to get everyone to rally behind him, tries and tries and tries. Legolas in this movie would be Marvin. He's the one who actually helped McLean the most throughout his mission and was there as a support figure. Gandalf would be Barnes. It's his wisdom and his clever plans that also aid along the way on the journey. Trudeau, I have as uh, Theoden. He basically is the current king of the airport, making all the decisions but eventually has to bow to Aragorn or to McLean after seeing his bravery and heroics firsthand. Carmine Lorenzo, he is Denthor II, steward of Gondor. He keeps trying to exert his power over John, but in reality, he's just a clueless pawn who should leave the decision-making up to others. General Stewart, he's our Sauron the White. Mar- Major Grant, well, he's his Urukai. And all the terrorists, they're just the orcs. Now, Sauron, that would be Esperanza. He's the boss calling all the orders. Every other bad guy technically works for him. Thornburg, the reporter. Like Gollum, Thornburg is just in it for himself. He's after what he considers most precious, fame and prestige. He doesn't care about his effect or the effects that he has on others or what his actions lead to. Now, you may have noticed I haven't referenced anyone as Frodo and Sam. For them, it boils down to the journey. It's really the planes that are on a journey from point A to point B and trying to get to their final destination. It's like Lord of the Rings. It's you know Aragorn who plays an essential role as a protector and defender of Frodo to complete the journey. 
So if anyone is Frodo in this movie, it would be the planes circling around the airport trying to complete their journey. Sam would be the pilots flying those planes because they are assisting on completing the journey. So what is the precious? What is the one ring in Die Hard 2? Basically, it's the win. For McLean, it's getting Holly back safely on the ground. For the bad guys, it's getting Esperanza to freedom and getting paid. For Thornburg, win is fame and prestige. So for each character, the ring basically is a different goal, but all circles around the same thing, winning. And there you have it, my comparison between Die Hard 2, Die Harder, and Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. Couple things. <clears throat> First one. Uh, was Thornburg Gollum in the last one? Do you remember? You know, I'd have to go look it up, but I bet you he was. I was just curious. That, that's a good comparison. You know, I don't know. Were we doing Precious Moments back at no. the first one? I don't think oh, we, we were, were at that point. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Uh, and two, did you compare two hobbits to two planes? I took about all the Or planes. Sorry, you, you know what I meant. Did yeah. you compare the hobbits to the planes? Frodo is the planes because they're the ones on a journey. Uh, does the term round ball square peg mean anything to you? Yeah, maybe. Why? Yeah, this one felt a little bit forced there, buddy. A little bit forced. Um, you were on such a good track record, too. So, uh, for me, I'm going to give you a C, bud. Okay. I'll give you a C. Was Aragorn, that's McLean, right? Yes, McLean. Okay. And Arwen is his wife, Holly. Uh, I can work with the, I can work with the Theoden, uh, the Danther for Lorenzo, and Saruman the White. I understand Sauron. Give you a C. Okay. All right. C's all the way around. So big old lump of coal for me. Lump of coal right up the ass. I mean, anus. Well, wrong movie, but I hear what you're saying. And that was John's. Moment. All right. What do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this bitch? I could be ready to rate this bitch. John, do you want to rate this bitch too? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie is, that is cinematic gold. It is something you're ready to watch anytime somebody says, dude, do you want to watch this? Yes, I do. A one fuck movie is a movie where you've seen it once and you have no desire to ever see it again. There's nothing redeeming or you care to see about it ever again. And what's a zero? A zero fuck movie is probably coming in, you know, uh, with an altitude 200 feet too low. You know, crash and burn. Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. All right, who wants to go first? I'll go first. All right, buddy. Die Hard 2 is, as I've been saying, a fun watch. And every time I watch it, I enjoy watching it. I realize that throughout the arc of this episode, I have been a little nitpicky about some things. But part of that happens because I am doing a podcast now. But when I sit and I watch it, these type of things are inside my head and it doesn't necessarily pull me out of the movie and I don't find it to be detracting but they are things that I do notice despite noticing them any audience will take or discard or become distracted by these points and sometimes it does for me and sometimes it doesn't so this time around watching it because it's the first time I've watched it since we've been doing the podcast I don't think that it distracted me all that much, but they are do things that I definitely think about. This Die Hard movie definitely feels like the first Die Hard movie. I don't like it as much as the original because, hey, pff, come on. 
but it is always a fun watch and it has lots of enjoyable moments lots of, lots of little McLeanisms that are uh, relished as they happen on the screen i enjoyed having thornburg back in the story you know he he plays a wonderful slimy character that you know just gets under your skin colonel stewart totally awesome loved him as a villain and i always enjoy watching major grant's story arc knowing now what I didn't know the first time that I saw it. So it's a fun watch. And I think that in general, despite the idiosyncrasies that I point out, I'm still eager to watch it whenever I happen to fire it up. This movie for me is four fucks. Four fucks from the professor. You want to go? You want me to go? I can go. All right, buddy. When you boil it down, Die Hard 2 really is just a remake of Die Hard 1. Well, in principle. It's just in an airport instead of a high-rise. Basically, you've got one guy fighting off terrorists with an occasional help of a side character around Christmas, and you know McLean has to deal with pain-in-the-ass law enforcement stereotypes, all to save his wife, and has an annoying reporter to boot. So really, it's just it's the same movie. But if you love Die Hard, and anybody who's listened to our podcast in the past know we are huge Die Hard fans... You're going to love this movie because it delivers on everything that we want out of a Die Hard sequel, especially being a follow-up to the first great movie. So, in my opinion, it's exactly what you want. It's a badass action flick that works. It contains all the big, boomy goodness that we liked from the first Die Hard. It also gives us tons of more one-liners, which was one of the key elements of the first movie that everyone loved. So really, if you love Die Hard, you love this movie. What I also have said repeatedly in many podcasts is I love oh shit moments. And this movie does give us our oh shit moments, but it also adds to that with a lot of fuck yeah moments. You know, if you're not even a person who usually says fuck yeah, you're going to find yourself having that feeling at some point throughout this movie. So it's for all those reasons I'm giving Die Hard 2, Die Harder, Four fucks. Four fucks from the comic book guy. I wonder what you're going to give it, because I think I know. What do you think I'm going to give it? I'm going to write it down. Okay. Do you want to play this game too, bud? Sure. I will play the game. Die Hard 2. Die Harder. Um, Die Hard is, you know, almost a perfect movie for me. And Die Hard 2 is a lot of fun, uh, but... There were things that I felt, yeah, okay. Uh, Thornburg happens to be on the same flight as Mrs. McLean and just happens to be uh, introduced to us uh, toward the end of their flight, and they had no idea that they, each other were on the flight to begin with. Yeah, okay. Shoehorn? Maybe. Al Pal? I've made sense because, you know, McLean needed information. So. I'll, I'll buy that. Die Hard at an airport? Sure, fun. What's not to love, right? Die Hard 2, I feel at times, is a bit bloated. And I think that uh, though a great villain, uh, Colonel Stewart, not anywhere close to Hans, and really I think that there are other villains in this series that are better than Stewart. As I was watching it last night, 
uh, I really enjoy Die Hard 2. I like the callbacks. I like the action. I love Bruce Willis, you know, the soundtrack, everything. It, it's a fun, fun, fun movie. Um, but as I was watching it last night, I it kind of dawned on me. Die Hard 2, to me, is the Jaws 2 of the franchise. Uh, Jaws, perfect, right? Jaws 2, not horrible, not as bad as I think people say it is. It's a continuation of a character that we love to see and further adventures. That's what Die Hard 2 is. I think that the diehards get better after 2, um, minus 5, but we'll talk about that later. Um, but a very solid sequel in the same vein of the first one. So it's just further adventures. Um, if I had to pick... You know, if someone said, outside of Die Hard 1, which Die Hard do you want to watch? I don't know if 2 would be the first thing that popped in my head. So, for that reason, I'm going to give Die Hard 2, Die Harder, 3.5 fucks. I wrote down 4 fucks. No, of course you did. I thought 4 and a quarter because you're such a Die Hard fan. I am a Die Hard fan. But as a film, there are, there are better Die Hards out there. So, with 3.5 fucks from me, 4 fucks from John, 4 fucks from the professor, that gives Die Hard 2 Die Harder an average fuck score of 3.8 fucks, which ties it with True Lies, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles in Rambo First Blood Part 2. And it's slightly better than Hell or High Water, The Blues Brothers, and slightly worse than Clerks 2, Edge of Tomorrow, and violent night so quick piece of trivia for you since we like a certain word on this podcast that we say i think frequently how many times was the word fuck said in die hard 2 210 less than 100 that's all i got 60 times oh wow you win did you know that uh when uh live free or die hard came out it was rated PG-13 and everyone had a fucking fit about it so they released an unrated version and all they did was add the word fuck <laughs> and it's Bruce Willis saying fuck and a lot of the times his backs to the camera or we don't see his mouth <laughs> That's funny. I did not know that. Yeah. That is wacky wild stuff. I do want to say throughout this podcast I have been a little distracted. Why is that? Because before we started our podcast, one of our favorite guests, uh, Jill and Ronnie, showed up, and they gave us a gift, a wonderful uh, Christmas ball, uh, something that they created that has Captain Kirk in it, full of tribbles, as well as additional little tribble balls that they gave us that I have been playing with my fuzzy balls like the whole podcast. Really? Yeah, I've just been rolling them around in my hands and fingering them. And how is that any different than any other day ending? And why? Because normally they're shaved. Ah, I got you. I was thinking, well, they're outside of his pants. Ah, I see. So I it's see. different that way. You haven't been playing with your fuzzy balls at all. Does it look like I've been playing with my fuzzy balls at all? You want me to kind of throw mine at you? No. Why would I want your fuzzy balls? Let's. I feel like you want to give me your fuzzy balls. Just bounce it right off your head? No, that's... Do you want to do that? Is Would that make you happy? Yeah, that's what I thought. Chances are he couldn't fucking hit me, even from this distance. It's weird, though. That I've seen you throw, bud. I was it, just going to say, yeah, let, let's watch him throw. The only weird thing is... That <laughs> let's go have a game of throw. That I have, like, three of them. That's just the weird thing. All right, so that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. Be sure to tune in next week when we are going to have our first ever year in review 
podcast about the year we just had as podcasters. So be sure to tune in for that. Hey, John, where can they find us? As always, they can find us at our website, threeguysinaflick.com, where we post all of our podcasts, our show notes, movie trivia, and anything else we think of putting up there. You can also find us at any podcast directory site, as well as social media. All right, so there you have it. I just want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for listening. Keep on listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And I want to thank everyone else who listens to us. Uh, We appreciate it. Keep spreading the word. We hope to grow our fandom uh, exponentially this next coming year. So That would be wonderful. Absolutely. For Three Guys in a Flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Thanks for flying with us. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Happy Holidays. Your response should be, after I say uh, Professor Ken, hey, Don, let me ask you something. What sets off the the metal detectors first? The lead in your ass or the shit in your brains? Fat fuck. No. That one I don't think you can. Anyways. Maybe he just wanted to see you get ruffled. I'm not ruffled. Not yet. Um, He'll be fluffed later, but not ruffled. There you go. Oh, I have your fucking permission now? Yes. Mine too. You may continue. Okay, you both may continue to lick my balls. Go forth. I was just thinking that. You I bet my, you were, buddy. My fuzzy ones? <laughs> uh, the stingers just write themselves. <clears throat> All right. Fucking hobbits and planes. <laughs> There's something I, I thought I'd never hear. Uh, but now you have. Now I now have. Now you have. All right. So for three... G- what? Where do they find us? They know where to find us. <laughs> so, for three guys. And I'm Ken. Thanks for flying with us. Happy birthday. Wait. <laughs> Maybe give a little bit of insight to, you know, our lives outside of this podcast, but that's how I start every morning. Oh, naked yoga? Naked yoga. Naked Tai Chi. Oh, interesting. Yeah. What the fuck? And if you, you know, I usually throw in just kind of the topper on the ice cream, you know, do a little windmill action going too. Interesting. Interesting. New stuff we learn about the comic book guy every day. Would, would you like me to show you? Uh, yeah, fuck. Whip it out, buddy. I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, all right, fuck off. Good night.